Welcome to the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. Now get ready for another episode of Strange Things with Joshua P. Warren. The thoughts and opinions expressed by the host are thoughts and opinions only and do not necessarily reflect those of iHeartMedia, iHeartRadio, Coast to Coast AM, employees of Premier Networks or their sponsors and associates. You are encouraged to do the proper amount of research yourself, depending on the subject matter and your needs. mind-blowing content, news, exercises, and weird experiments you can do at home, and a lot more. And on this edition of the show, The Brown Mountain Lights, Part 1, because <laughs> this is a big story. I don't know how many parts we're going to have, but this has been a big part of my life, and I decided I'm just going to take my time and tell you this whole story, however many parts it takes. And it's kind of like a soap opera. I believe you will be surprised. Okay. I was born and raised in Asheville, North Carolina, in the heart of the Blue Ridge Mountains there in the western part of the state. That's where my family on both sides had been for generations. And if you drive a little over an hour from Asheville close to Morganton, North Carolina, you enter the Pisgah National Forest and you find Brown Mountains. It's on the border of Burke and Caldwell counties. This is a long, low-lying ridge, about 2,300 feet in elevation. And uh, there's an overlook there off of, uh, they call it Highway 181, where you can park and look at this mountain. And here is what I once wrote about Brown Mountain. The backside of the mountain is quite lush. Scenic streams rush through crags, cutting mighty gapes through the mountain boulders. There are ferns, mushrooms, mosses, and other signs of moist life. However, as one ascends the mountain, the moisture dwindles. Many of the trees on the mountainside look sparse and dead, perhaps suffering from acid rain. The ridge is primarily composed of ordinary cranberry granite. It contains sandstone, quartz, and mica. Iron has also been found on the mountain. The area around Brown Mountain is a black bear reserve, and it's also well known for copperheads, one of the most deadly snakes in the country. The Brown Mountain area is extremely rugged. Thus, hikers and bikers in the area have died from accidents. The side of the ridge is covered with slick rock faces, especially treacherous when covered with water, or fallen leaves. One of the biggest reasons the lights are still a mystery is because it's so dangerous and difficult to navigate the ridge and surrounding land. There are also some small caves and holes around the mountain. It's noteworthy that Brown Mountain is a short distance from the Linville Caverns, the only, quote, show cave in the entire state of North Carolina. Interestingly, the ridge is almost completely encircled by thrust faults. I'll tell you more about that later. This fact plays into some of the theories regarding the lights being related to geologic movement. During the daytime, from a distance, the ridge appears quite insignificant. But at night, it can sometimes steal the spotlight from any other formation in the Appalachians. So, that gives you an idea of the location I'm talking about here. And when I was a kid, I remember my father telling me about the mysterious brown mountain lights. That on this ridge, these multicolored balls of light would sometimes form and float on, around, or above this ridge at night. And nobody could explain 
What caused them? Scientists had studied them from all over the world. But my dad was especially fond of a song, a, a kind of a bluegrass song that had been written about this um, and sung by a man named Tommy Fail. That last name is spelled F-A-I-L-E. It's called The Legend of the Brown Mountain Lights. And uh, you should look it up and listen to that song. And what you'll find is that the version of the story in the song uh, and there we'll get into some of the different legends connected to the mountain. But the version is that there was a man who had some type of uh, massive property in the area and uh, he liked to go hunting and he had a bunch of slaves. So they say in the song. And so at one point he went out to go hunting and he never came back. So one of his faithful servants got a lantern and went out there trying to to find him. And the servant also never returned. But to this day, he's still searching. And you, when you see those lights on the mountain, you're seeing that ghostly lantern as he's looking for, as they say in the song, his master who died long, long ago. Okay, So that's the story in the song. And it's a very catchy uh, song. And so, again, you know, this is how I, I kind of learned that there was this weird phenomenon uh, right down the road from me that had gained you know, national prominence. Now it's international, but at that time it was national. When I was uh, still a kid, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to say how old I was, 10, 11 years old, maybe. My dad and mom got me and my sister in the car and decided, let's go see if we can see the Brown Mountain Lights. And so it was a big deal. We drove up to this overlook. And back then the overlook was very overgrown, and uh, it was kind of it's kind of trashed out, really, you know, and we were the only car there and we were sitting there to just, you know, quietly watching this ridge <laughs> in the distance. There was nobody else around, nothing happening. And um, sure enough, at one point, this was probably like, you know, eight, nine o'clock at night. We start seeing these red lights appear on the side of the mountain that sort of would flare up and then dim and then flare up in the dim and it was just amazing the impact that made on me seeing these lights on this mountain and knowing that nobody can explain these and i just wanted to know what what the heck they were right and so that for me that really began my journey uh investigating the brown mountain lights and at this point i consider myself the world's top expert on the phenomenon. And I, and I say that because I own the website brownmountainlights.com. I've had it for a long, long time. It's very outdated. In fact, there's different software and everything, and some of the stuff doesn't even work on the site, but I promise I'm going to update that at some point. It's just, you know, not enough hours of the day, but uh, I've been on every TV channel you can imagine talking about these lights. Discovery, Travel Channel, Nat Geo. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, I was hired to produce a ghost tour there in Morganton, uh, which is run every October, and it definitely features the lights. And that is thanks to Ed Phillips, who is the director of the Burke County Tourism Development Authority. He picked me and asked me to do this. Their website, by the way, is discoverburkecounty.com. You'd be amazed how much cool stuff there is to do in Burke County. Uh, but also, Ed Phillips asked me if I would write a book about the Brown Mountain Lights, a booklet, really, that they could give out. And I did that. As a matter of fact, let me just read to you the intro to my booklet here called Brown Mountain Lights, A Viewing Guide. And uh, you can actually get this for free if you go to brownmountainlights.com. There's a place to download this as a PDF. I wrote, the Brown Mountain Lights are a world-famous topic of mystery and debate. For more than a century, locals, tourists, scientists, and researchers have been baffled by this weird and complex phenomenon. Most people think of the lights as a wondrous, colorful display on dark ridges at night. And yet, an entire subculture associates the enigma with UFOs, underground bases, conspiracies, reality warps, and high strangeness similar to the Bermuda Triangle. And this book will focus on the display itself. Despite fascinating photographs of weird illuminations presented for years, 
Some who have never seen the lights are convinced they don't even exist. There is only one way for you to know. You must venture out and look for yourself. I have been investigating the phenomenon for decades, and in this guidebook, I'll give you a solid understanding of the mythos behind the lights and tips on how to properly observe the mountain yourself. All the while, I will maintain a somewhat cautious and neutral view on what they may be. After all, they are a great mystery. And though there are many theories, no one knows for sure. Hence the beauty of this rare and mystical slice of Americana. Hopefully, that helps to set the tone for you on what we're dealing with here. If you've never even heard of the Brown Mountain Lights. Now, this area around Morganton is an area where lots of interesting legends have become famous or infamous over the years. Maybe you've heard about Frankie Silver, for example. This was a real woman. Uh, her name was Frances Stuart Silver. She was born in 1814 or 1815. They're not sure. And when she was around 18 years old, she was hanged right there, you know, publicly hanged, executed in Morganton in Burke County, North Carolina, for the axe murder of her husband, Charles Silver. And that made big headlines and it made history in the area. And a lot of people talk about the ghost of Frankie Silver around there. But then the legends, they just keep coming. I'm going to tell you in a minute about the Native American stories, about... Look, then then we're going to kind of get into the scientists. What, what have the scientists told us? And it begins all the way back in 1771. Uh, what a story. It's intimidating to tell it, but I'm going to do my best. And if you want to take advantage of some of the free goodies that I give my listeners instantly... Right now, all you have to do is go to joshuapwarren.com. There's no period after the P, joshuapwarren.com. There's a little box where you can put your email address in there and hit the submit button to sign up for my free e-newsletter. And when you do that, you will instantly automatically get an email from me with some links to some extremely cool stuff that I promise you is going to make your day. And then after that, I'll keep you updated on future projects. All right, I am Joshua P. Warren. You're listening to Strange Things on the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. And I will be right back. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash strange things today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash strange things. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. 
Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. With age, women and men have issues with fine lines, wrinkles, under-eye bags, crepey skin on the neck, and aging on the hands. Dr. Nathan Newman has developed Luminous for amazing results treating these issues with his stem cell-based formula, APT200. Try Luminous today with our postage-paid starter kit for only $19.99, available exclusively at HealthyLooking.com. Join thousands of satisfied customers using Luminous. Learn more at HealthyLooking.com. Hey, the Coast to Coast AM YouTube channel is waiting for you now. Go to coasttocoastam.com for more information. The Internet is an extraordinary resource that links our children to a world of information, experiences, and ideas. It also can expose them to risk. Teach your children the basic safety rules of the virtual world. Our children are everything. Do everything for them. to Strange Things on the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. I'm your host, the Wizard of Weird, Joshua P. Warren, beaming into your wormhole brain from my studio in Sin City, Las Vegas, Nevada, where every day is golden and every night is silver. There are lots of stories Lots of legends in the folklore surrounding the Brown Mountain Lights. One of them is that around the year 1200, there was some kind of a battle between two Native American tribes, the Cherokee and the Catawba. And the story goes that afterward, the the, the maidens went out with torches burning, you know, at night searching for the bodies of their slain loved ones. And you can still see their torch lights burning. Uh, but historians say there's no evidence that that kind of a battle happened. So who knows? And then there's a story about a man in the early 1900s who murdered his wife and child in the area and buried them somewhere around Brown Mountain. And that's when the lights started to appear. And then the lights led the authorities to the bodies and uh, they ended up you know, arresting the man. These stories go on and on. But let's talk about what what scientists and researchers have given us, okay? Uh, I think we can trace this back scientifically to weird stuff happening around at least 1771. In that year, a German engineer named Gerard de Brom, he was exploring the area and he recorded some some strange stuff. He was intrigued by these unexplainable sounds in the mountains. I think he said they were booms or something like that. And so in his diaries, he wonders 
Oddly, if the noises could be created by the spontaneous ignition of, quote, nitrous vapors carried by the wind. Okay, that's what he that's what he put. So, I mean, who knows? But that is just, you know, one of those weird things on September 24th of 1913 the big newspaper in north carolina the charlotte observer published an article and again this is 1913 it was it was titled no explanation burke county's mysterious light still baffles investigators and that article states quote the light rises in a southeasterly direction from the point of observation just over the slope the lower slope of brown mountain First, about 7.30 p.m., again about 20 or 30 minutes later, and again at 10 o'clock. It looks much like a toy fire balloon, a distinct ball with no, quote, atmosphere about it, and as nearly as the average observer can measure it about the size of the toy balloon. It uh, also says, many have scoffed at this spooky thing. And those members of the Morganton Fishing Club who first saw it more than two years ago were laughed at and accused of seeing things at night as a result of a common human frailty. But as more and more persons have seen it, various attempts have been made to explain the mystery. End quote. So right there, if you just look at the newspaper articles, that shows you that the lights were definitely a hot topic going back to at least around 1911. So after this kind of publicity spread, the lights were investigated at least three times by the U.S. government, once by the U.S. Weather Service, twice by the U.S. Geological Survey. Even the Smithsonian conducted an expedition. And in a 1922 geological survey, a scientist named George Mansfield studied the mountain and its weather conditions for weeks. And in his official report, titled Circular 646, he stated that the lights were, quote, 47% auto headlights, 33% locomotive lights, 10% stationary lights, and 10% brush fires. <laughs> and many locals were outraged and felt this report was just pure hogwash because the lights had been seen long before autos and locomotives. And plus, in 1916, there was a great flood in the area that wiped out uh, the transportation routes, and there were no trains or autos in the area for more than a week. However, the lights continued to be seen. So this gives you an idea of how seriously this phenomenon has been taken for a long, long time. And then things take a really weird twist when we... <laughs> We start getting into the 1960s, all right? So you have all these people out there, and some some are saying, well, call them what you want, earth lights, spook lights, will of the wisp, foxfire. Some people say the swamp gas, but there's really no, no swamp around. I mean, in 1961, Tommy Fail, as I told you, F-A-I-L-E, he records this hit, The Legend of the Brown Mountain Lights. I believe he, he sung it at the Grand Ole Opry. And in 1965, there was this guy who lived right there near the mountain named Ralph Lill, who really brought the whole Brown Mountain Lights phenomenon into the grand age of ufology. Now, Ralph Lell was an, a very eccentric man. Uh, he actually ran for Congress at one point and lost. But he had a little museum for tourists up there near Brown Mountain. It was called the Outer Space Rock Shop Museum. And if you drop by there, uh, you could pick up, you know, souvenirs. And then if you paid him a couple bucks, he would take you into the back room and he would show you what he swore was the mummified body of a little alien. Let me repeat that. He had a mummified body of a little alien. And I have a picture of this. I'm going to tell you how to see this picture in a minute. But his story was that he, you know, growing up in the area, he would sit there and he would see these lights on, on you know, of a somewhat regular basis. 
and he was trying to communicate with them and he would start turning off and on flashlights and things and and they were sort of signaling back and forth like he was he felt he was communicating with the lights with his flashlight and then he got some telepathic instructions that led him down this very remote trail to a sheer cliff face and it turns out that it wasn't really a rock face uh, it opened up somehow and he was able to enter the mountain and when he entered brown mountain um he was met there by some aliens that he described as not being like the little grays but more of you know the aliens that look kind of like humans and that they were very friendly and the cave was beautiful. He said the whole interior of the cave was lined with all these giant crystals. The crystal cave, he called it. And they put him on a spaceship. And then they soared out of Brown Mountain. And they took him on a tour of the galaxy. And as he was zipping around the cosmos, they were showing him more or less movies uh, that were kind of explaining to him how that humans were created and then seeded onto earth and how that if we don't, you know, behave, we're going to destroy this whole thing. And, you know, that, that the same message that you probably heard many times. So he was very confident in all this. And uh, somehow in the midst of this, he said, well, I want some proof so that I can give this message to others. And he ended up with a dead body. They gave him one of their dead. And. This is what you could see for a few bucks, and apparently you could even take a picture of it. Um, there are only two pictures known to exist, and one of them was taken in person by Mr. UFO Timothy Green Beckley. You know, you've heard me talk about him. He was there at Brown Mountain in the 1960s, and he took a picture of Ralph Lell's alien mummy, and uh, he gave me permission to share it with you. Uh, there was another photograph that was taken. Uh, again, I only know of two. Uh, there's a gentleman named Charles Braswell who has taken a lot of great pictures of the Brown Mountain Lights. And he's a professional photographer. And his mother took a picture back in the day. Uh, but if you want to see Tim Beckley's picture, uh, I have it right now posted for you. Uh, I don't know when you're going to be listening to this podcast, so it might not be there uh, if you go some other time. But if you go right now to joshuapwarren.com and click the link to the curiosity shop. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to make you go to the curiosity shop and look at everything. Go there and scroll down and you will see the picture of Ralph Lale's alien mummy. Now, you might say, come on, this guy has just got to be some kind of a con man, right? But the weird thing is, that people in the area actually said that Ralph Lale would, um, he would pack a little, like a little paper bag lunch and he would tell everybody, I'm going to go off and see my space friends. And he would just walk off into the woods and nobody would see him for two, three weeks. And then one day he'd come walking back out and he looked just as fresh as the day he went in. And nobody could explain, you know, where he'd been or how he'd been surviving out there. Perhaps one of the weirdest things of all, though, is that uh, one day, um, well, Ralph Lelly died. And I've never gotten a clear explanation is, you know, I, I don't know exactly what happened to him. But they said it was sudden. It was unexpected. And after that, somebody or some entity came in, bulldozed his shop to the ground. And to this day, nobody knows what happened to Ralph Lell's alien mummy. Go check out the picture of it. If you know something, if you know where it is, <laughs> contact me. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to tell you about my experiences when I finally started camping out at Brown Mountain. I'm Joshua P. Warren. You're listening to Strange Things on the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. I'll be back after these important messages. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff 
In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts i used to have so many men how this beguiling woman in her 50s she looked like a million bucks with zero qualifications she had a harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At ParanormalDate.com, you meet the most fantastic people. Hi, I'm Tom. Hi, I'm Jennifer. What brings you here? Yeah, I'm here to meet someone who understands me. How so? Well, I'm into UFOs, ghosts, aliens, Bigfoot, conspiracy theories, the paranormal, that kind of stuff. But can't seem to find anyone who gets it. Oh, well, um, nice to meet you, Tom. I, I gotta go. Uh, okay. Guess that's not your cup of tea. Are you sure? Very. Good luck with that. I can't meet anyone when I'm out and I really can't find a website for my unique interests. What is one to do? Have you thought about ParanormalDate.com? Para what dot what? Who are you? I'm a paranormal matchmaker and it's ParanormalDate.com It's a website for people looking for people like them. Stuff you like, remember? Interesting. Uh, I'll give it a try. Well, let's try this again. Uh, Hi, I'm Tom. Hey, I'm Deb. Your profile on Paranormal date.com looked very interesting. So you really saw a UFO? Well, yeah. It was so intense, but not as intense as meeting you. You're an alien chasing flirt, but I kind of like it. Wow. This paranormaldate.com thing really works. Maybe paranormaldate.com is for you. People with an interest in things they hear on George's show find their match daily. So if you're looking for that special someone with an interest in UFOs, ghosts, aliens, big Bigfoot, conspiracy theories, and of course, the paranormal. Come to the dating site inspired by George Norrie. It's always free to search, and if you decide to upgrade to our amazing new features, use promo code GEORGE for a great discount. ParanormalDate.com. You are not alone. 
The Coast to Coast AM mobile app is here and waiting for you right now. And with the app, you can hear classic shows from the past seven years, listen to the current live show, and get access to the Art Bell Vault where you can listen to uninterrupted audio. Head on over to the coasttocoastam.com website. We have a handy video guide to help you get the most out of your mobile app usage. All the info is waiting for you now at coasttocoastam.com. That's coasttocoastam.com. iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. I'm your host, Joshua P. Warren, and this is the show where the unusual becomes usual. It's funny that Ralph Lell talked about meeting these aliens in this you know, inner world, this underground world below Brown Mountain. And then in 1990, uh, there was a book published by the mysterious Commander X called Underground Alien Bases, in which he says that Brown Mountain is an underground base of this type. Uh, more on that sort of thing later. But just to give you an idea of how popular the Brown Mountain Lights uh, started to become, on May 9th of 1999, there was an episode of the X-Files TV series called Field Trip that featured the Brown Mountain Lights. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a very weird episode, but it was obviously was ended up being connected to aliens and UFOs and all that. Uh, but when this thing was on the X-Files, man, I mean, a lot of people heard about it for the first time because of that. So there was this explosion in popular culture, more interest in the Brown Mountain Lights. As a matter of fact, in 2014, there was a movie made that was set at Brown Mountain, kind of a mockumentary type movie, uh, and it was called Alien Abduction. I'm in that movie. Uh, the guy who made it, Matty Beckerman, he, he kind of wanted to do a Blair Witch sort of thing, uh, where he tells the, you know, the, the story of this family that goes up to Brown Mountain and gets abducted. But to make it seem more realistic, he actually hired me and other real experts and witnesses to just comment about the lights. And he edited that in. And to this day, there are people who contact me believing that that, that mockumentary was real. <laughs> so he, he must have done a pretty good job of convincing some people that that was, <laughs> that that was real. But it, no, that was just, that was just fiction. Okay. So anyway, when I was a teenager, when I turned 16 years old, one of the first things I did was planned my first trip to go up there with my buddies camping at Brown Mountain. And over the next 15 years, that is exactly what I continue to do on a regular basis. Uh, camp on and around Brown Mountain. A lot of times I didn't camp right on top of it, you know, because I wanted to get a view of the whole mountain. So I'd camp on one of these little ridges that was next to it where I had a good view of it. And... Uh, you know, at least in the spring and in the fall, oftentimes we do spring, summer and fall. I never was up there in the winter. I'm telling you, I, I camped uh, in, in the late fall and it was so cold and windy up there that um, I just did not want to camp up there in the middle of the winter time. But let me just sort of let me give you an idea um, of what it's like to be there. All right. Because. uh Yes, you have these you know, public overviews, overlooks uh, in the Pisgah National Forest, but you have to get a permit from the Forest Station Service there, uh, the Forest Service Station in Nebo, North Carolina, and they give you a key to, so that you can open up some service roads and, and really drive into these places that most people don't get to go. And when you have a permit, when you have a permit and a service road gate key from the Forest Service, and you drive forever up winding mountain dirt roads until you finally reach the service gate. 
you know, the service road gate. And then you use a chainsaw and an axe to clear away old fallen trees as your four wheel drive groans up this service trail deep onto the mountain. And then you set up your camp and you watch the sun go down. And then late that night when it's dark and quiet, you walk all by yourself, all alone, 30 or 40 minutes, you know, deep into those woods. Your senses are magnified uh, in, in the dim blue moonlight. I mean, you hear every twig and leaf and cool breeze. And there's a real feeling that on that mountain, right where you stand at any moment, anything can happen. And you don't know if it's going to be good or bad, but you definitely know you are in an altered state of mind. That's what it's like to be in the dark trees and bushes on Brown Mountain by yourself at night, just waiting for something to happen. And as I mentioned before, at that time, even the overlook was neglected and overgrown and kind of trashed out. And today, I'm happy to report, the last time I was there, all that has changed. It's been cleaned up. It's been expanded. There is a nice sign there, a nice plaque that talks about the mountain, even some picnic tables. I'm very happy that it is being treated much better than it was back in those days. But I didn't just go up there with my buddies. I also was able to go up there and invite some esteemed scientists. For example, I camped up there at least once or twice with Dr. David Hackett, who was a physicist at the Oak Ridge National Lab in Tennessee. He was with a group called Orion, and back in the mid-70s through the mid-80s, they were camping up there, and they were investigating the lights, along with another group called the, uh, I think, the Enigma Group. And he said they saw the lights many times. Uh, they were able to measure telluric currents, which is when you put some metal rods in the ground and you see that there's all, all of a sudden more electricity running through the rocks. They even were able to set off some dynamite to create a, a little trimmer and claim that doing that would sometimes trigger lights. Now, I don't think that was even <laughs> legal, okay? I don't know. It probably wasn't, but they did it. They were scientists. They could, you know. Uh, I, I camped up there with a, a forest ranger, uh, with a, a rocket scientist from Ohio State University, uh, historian, Dr. Bill Forstchen. I mean, a lot of people, very esteemed people went up there and camped and, and, and oversaw the work that we were doing because we had all kinds of instruments. One thing that's really weird is that, you know, if you have a Geiger counter, for example, a Geiger counter is meant to pick up uh, ionizing radiation like alpha, beta, gamma radiation, x-rays. And I mean, that's what it's designed for. But oftentimes scientific meters will be affected by things that they were not designed to measure. And that's a weird thing that a lot of people don't think about. So, for example, you might go to a haunted house and you might have a meter, an electromagnetic field meter that was designed to measure household wiring fields. But that thing can still be affected by other fields that are outside of that particular frequency range. So, for example, with a Geiger counter, usually if you get something that's radioactive, you'll hear that pop, 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 little popcorn sound. But... If you just encounter uh, a strong electrostatic field, that will still affect a Geiger counter. But instead of going pop, 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 it starts whining and goes, and the needle just starts moving all over the place. So there were a lot of times where you're like, the Geiger counter was not, um, was not displaying any evidence of radioactivity, but it would just start going nuts, meaning there was an enormous amount of electrostatic charge affecting that tube. And you can, you can take a, a Geiger counter and you can hold it up to a Vandegraaff machine or something like that. And you can see what I'm talking about. 
We had all kinds of equipment. You know, you can drag a magnet across the ground all around Brown Mountain and pick up all kinds of little ferrous stones, you know, little magnetically sensitive stones. You'll be walking along. You'll see a, a hole in the ground. You got to be careful. You'll step in a hole that's like three feet deep and, you know, a couple feet around and you can break your leg and you look down in the hole and you see water, just water rushing underground. And you wonder how, how extensive are these little, little areas, right? I had a big tabletop device called a VLF detector, very low frequency detector. And you could manually scan a big range of frequencies from zero up to 500,000 Hertz. And I had it hooked to a big coil antenna. If you're a geek out there, I'll just tell you, it was 1,780 feet of coil as one layer of 24 gauge wire wrapped in a span of about 21.5 inches. So this thing was tuned to 145,000 Hertz. Sorry that I had to geek out for a minute, but just in case somebody finds that interesting. And when the lights would appear, we would get all this interference on this VLF device. It was never like at a consistent frequency though, but we would, we would pick up interference and that way we could tell like, this is not some kind of an ordinary light being created by a, you know, like a headlight on a four wheeler or something. And I had a spectroscope up there and uh, which allows you to look at a light and, and see what bands of color it produces on a film and try to, to figure out what the light is made of. It was, I, I never really got a, a good bead on a brown mountain light with the spectroscope. The, the, the couple times I got a glimpse though, it, it, it seemed pretty, like a pretty broad range. It wasn't like a specific thing, but I'm just giving you an idea of the things that I tried. If you go to brownmountainlights.com, you can look at this report that I released. I think it was in 2004, which really breaks down all the scientific stuff we were doing up there. So word got out that my team and I were up there conducting this level of research. And that is when the very strange people started contacting me and telling me things that I had never expected to hear. I'll tell you more about that when we come back. I'm Joshua P. Warren. You're listening to Strange Things on the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. I'll be right back. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tired of thinning hair and not so thrilled with the options to reverse it? After 10 years of extensive research, Dr. Nathan Newman is proud to introduce Reveal. Easy to apply Reveal works great on men and women and is used in the comfort of your home. Applied morning and evening. Free of parabens, sulfates, silicones, and dyes, Dr. Newman uses stem cell technology and natural ingredients in this revolutionary product. It's the only product that can be used for men and women without having to worry about side effects on your heart. It wasn't a accidental discovery. It was really made for the hair, so it doesn't have all the side effects that all the other products that we had. Because it was made for the hair, it really has very good effect very quickly. You will see the changes in your hair, not in two years, but you will see it within two or three months. You will see that it's thicker, is more lustrous, better. And the more you use it, the more it will continue to benefit and maintain the hair because it's a fight against our genetics and against the hormonal changes that we get. Once you start using it and you see the benefit, you want to maintain it by continuing to use it. Reveal is a luxury home care system applied twice daily that is as good a treatment as you would find at the most exquisite salons at a fraction of the price. And only at HealthyLooking.com can you get Reveal with free smart delivery shipping. Simply enter discount code GEORGE. Time to return to a fuller-looking head of hair with Reveal from HealthyLooking.com or by phone 24-7 at 800-604-3129. 800-604-3129. Genuine Reveal is not available in stores. Order today at HealthyLooking.com. Reveal. Every eight minutes, the American Red Cross brings help and hope to people in need. Thanks to the support of everyday heroes like you, the Red Cross is able to respond to disasters big and small, support military families, help ensure that blood is available when needed, and teach life-saving skills like CPR and first aid. Be a hero. Donate today. Visit redcross.org or call 1-800-RED-CROSS. Welcome back to the final segment of this edition of Strange Things on the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. I am your host, Joshua P. Warren, and I once wrote this description of the Brown Mountain Lights. They are usually described as multicolored balls of light that either flare up from one location or move as a group through the trees. They are often reported flying or floating into the air above the mountain as well. Even though Brown Mountain has become the focus of observation, they could more appropriately be called the Linville Lights, since the phenomenon has been reported throughout the area, especially in and around the Linville Gorge. 
most often witnessed from Wiseman's view. The lights frequently begin as a red glow flaring into white. They can also appear as orange, blue, green, or yellow. Usually a single ball of light only lasts six to 10 seconds before vanishing. However, on rare occasion, they may last longer than a minute, especially when floating into the air over the ridge. The movement of the lights is somewhat unpredictable. One orb can divide into several, the smaller ones eventually combining to form a large one again. They might seem to ooze around the trees and drift over the ridge, or just dwindle and fade away, or simply wink and vanish. The illumination is most often witnessed from vantage points miles away, and because of such great distances, and the fleeting nature of the phenomenon, most people cannot see specific details. Over the decades, a handful of people claim to have seen the lights up close. Yeah, I'll get back to that. And I had an experience where I saw a light that was pretty darn up close. But once word got out, that, you know, this level of, of interest was being revitalized that my team and I, the lemur team and I, we were out there and we were doing this kind of research. I started getting some very interesting letters in the mail and I got one from a man who was a reporter with a local newspaper and he wrote me this big thick, uh, uh, big thick letter and it had various materials in the envelope and he said, I don't know what to do with this except send this to you. And he said that because he was a reporter in the area, that he had been contacted by a man. Uh, and basically how this began for him was he got a letter and he opened it and it said, if you want to know the secrets of the Brown Mountain Lights, call this number. So he called that number and nobody answered the phone and this went on for days. And then finally a guy answered the phone and it sounded like an elderly man and they had a nice conversation, but the elderly man did not want to identify himself. And he said, I want you to meet me at the top of a trail at the top of Mount Pisgah. All right which is one of the biggest peaks in the area around Asheville. That's where they have the broadcasting towers for TV and radio. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a place that you have to make an effort to get to. So sure enough, like that Saturday or whenever, um, the guy got up, the reporter got up early in the morning and he made his way to the top of Mount Pisgah. He was supposed to meet this guy around noon at the top of Mount Pisgah. I mean, this is in the middle of the parkway, all right? And this is in the middle of the National Forest. And so when he got up there, you know, the guy wasn't there, and the reporter ate his lunch and kind of dozed off. And when he woke up, it was like, you know, 1230, and he goes, oh, man, I, pro I don't, hopefully I didn't totally miss out on this. So he figures I'll wait around till about one. Well, a few minutes after that, he looks over, and here is this old gentleman who comes walking up the trail and he's got a walking stick and a hat and sunglasses and this is the dude right so they have a little small talk and then they walk back down the mountain or travel back down the mountain i think there was like a little tram or some kind of little train or something you could take and uh at, at the bottom of the, of the mountain was a black jeep and they got in the jeep and they start driving and the old man starts telling him a story and after he assures the old man that he's not recording and, and essentially the old man says, I grew up near Brown mountain. And when I was a, a little boy, I used to go out and explore all the little caves and stuff in the area. And one day I crawled into a cave and I saw a light back, you know, deep in the cave. And he said, I crawled deeper and deeper. And finally I saw this big weird mass of blue light kind of like squirming around or whatever and he says i crawled up and it was a huge clump of worms and these worms were emitting this light 
And he literally said that he described it as these worms had some kind of a flaming blowhole. All right. And so he, he got some and took to show his dad. But by the time he got them to his dad, they were dead. And so this, this old man's story was that when he got older and he got into like science class in school, he started going and, and he would study these worms and he found they were producing, you know, like methane, some kind of natural gas and that there were these big pockets of it in the mountain. And so he started basically illegally tapping into this and had made a fortune over the years. Uh, from the, the natural gas that he was illegally extracting from this federal property, uh, the Brown Mountain area, and that, you know, that's what causes the lights. Okay, now that's a weird one. That's a weird, uh, there's no evidence that any of that is true. I'm not even sure if that's plausible, but that was what this reporter told me. And this is, this was, this was the beginning of this like cascade of bizarro stories. I started to get now I was at Brown Mountain myself one time and I did look down and sure enough, I saw a glow worm uh, and uh, I was like, oh, is that one of them? Uh, and it turns out that was just uh, a larva for a, a lightning bug. They have, you know, the little glow worms are, I guess that's what they usually are. So you do see some glowing worms on the ground up there from time to time, but no flaming blowholes. And then I was up there one night at the overlook and uh, the, the 181 overlook just watching for the lights. And there was this guy who came up there and parked his car and got out and started talking to me. And he told me that his family had lived in Morganton for decades and they used to own a cafe. And that back in the 1980s, that one day a full bird army colonel walked into the cafe and said that he wanted to make arrangements for them to fix meals that they would bring up to uh, a service uh, gate um, every single day for like a couple months to feed 300 to 400 men. And this was a huge deal, you know, for a little cafe in Morganton. And they had to go to all these extents to work out logistics and, you know, get, get the money they needed up front and all this kind of thing to fulfill this contract. And they said that sure enough, for like a couple of months every day, they would drive up there to this gate at Brown Mountain. A couple of MPs would meet them and take the, uh, the load of food and drive off into the woods. And somewhere out there in those woods, three or 400 men were being fed per day, but they never saw them in. And that was also right around the time when President Ronald Reagan started uh, discussing his Star Wars program around 1984. If you're old enough, you might remember that the Strategic Defense Initiative, we called it the Star Wars program. And this was when the U.S. was getting really interested in, um, in trying to use, you know, satellites and, and, you know, space technology, uh, in order to, to control, um, the, the security of, of our country from, from the sky, from the cosmos. I mean, I'm still not sure that we, we know all that they were doing. But it just seemed to me that at that time, I know there was a lot of interest in, um, in studying space. And then, and, and now we have people talking about aliens being there. And now we have, uh, now we have the military. Okay. We're about out of time. So I'll tell you what, um, on the next show, I'm going to tell you what happened when I had a very close encounter with one of these. And I'm also, going to be telling you about something that ticked me off to this day. I still kind of grip my teeth. It kind of upsets me to talk about it. Thanks for uh, sticking in here. Here is the good fortune tone. Take a deep breath. Enjoy. That's it 
for this edition of the show, follow me on Twitter at Joshua P. Warren. Plus, visit JoshuaPWarren.com to sign up for my free e-newsletter to receive a free instant gift and check out the cool stuff in the Curiosity Shop all at JoshuaPWarren.com. I have a fun one lined up for you next time, I promise. So please tell all your friends to subscribe to this show and to always remember the golden rule. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your interest and support. Thank you for staying curious. And I will talk to you again soon. You've been listening to Strange Things on the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. Well, if you like this episode of Strange Things, wait till you hear the next one. Thank you for listening to the iHeartRadio and Coast to Coast AM Paranormal Podcast Network. <laughs>